How are we doing? If I have not met you, my name is Pastor Mike Lotzer. I'm the lead pastor here. You're joining us in a series called There Will Be Giants. We're looking at the life of King David, and uh, my sermon notes are right here. So I used to memorize it, but just a lot of work, right? Hey, um, it's a weird day. It's one of those sermons that's kind of like an eat your vegetables sermon. You, you might not like the Brussels sprouts, right? You know, we're talking about the giant of sin, and it's not fun to preach about sin. It's not fun to be preached at about sin, and it's my birthday, which is, it's just a weird, thank you, thank you. I, I'm not a huge birthday guy, so I'm just going to get that out of the way, and that's enough happy birthday, but, but it's a weird tone to, to preach about the seriousness of sin on your birthday, but that's what we're doing. So David had probably like three chapters in his life. You could look at his life and say the first chapter was trials. I mean, he, he grew up hard. He was the youngest of a bunch of brothers. He was a shepherd. He had to physically fight off predators like lions, uh, tigers, and bears, oh my, you know, from, from his flock. And he was kind of forgotten, looked past. And then he was anointed the future king of Israel, but the current king didn't like that and would throw spears at him on a regular basis. He was a talented young man. He was a musician and a warrior, but, but the, the giant of jealousy came after him. He had to fight a literal giant, the giant of Goliath. So these are all trials. But then the middle chapter, 20 years or so, they're triumph. He, he just kept winning. He just kept doing what was right in the Lord's eyes as king. He, he defended the enemies of God's people. He embodied what a godly man, a godly king should be. And he really foreshadows the Messiah. Like David is not the point, but David points to the point. David points to Jesus in those years of triumph. He comes to conquer sin and death, and, and he shows us what a man who has a heart like God's heart is supposed to look like. And then it all turns into the third chapter. He's probably in his early 50s, and you might title that third chapter, Troubles. David brings great trouble on himself. It's very self-inflicted. And the giant of sin gets David. You might even say slays David. Later in his years, he should know better, but he gives in to sin. And so, we're going to jump into the text, but before we even get to the text, I want to make this comment about sin. It always starts small. Sin, the Bible says, uh, the Greek word is hamartia, which means missing the mark. It's an archery term. Whether you miss it by a mile or an inch, it doesn't really matter. You missed. You missed the target of truth and righteousness and what is good and beautiful and righteous and redeeming. You missed it in the way you, that you spoke or you lived, or even the way that you felt. There's sins of omission. You, you left that thing undone. You didn't send that letter. You didn't say, I'm sorry. You didn't forgive. Or sins of commission. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have watched that. You shouldn't have said that. But sin always starts small. Let's go to 2 Samuel 11, 2 through 3. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David said, sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Next slide. It always starts small. So, do you, do you get the picture? David 
has a palace. It's higher than everything else because the king is literally supposed to keep his eye on the people. And so there's, there's kind of purpose in the architecture. When women menstruated in this Hebrew culture, the Israelite women would go through this cleansing process because God had laid out certain uh, rules to kind of train his chosen people that he was going to reveal his rescue mission to the world through. And he said, you know, I want to teach you some principles. And one of the things is I, I want you to be very careful about coming into contact with blood because blood is weighty. Blood is life. And, and, and your actions have consequences as heavy as blood. And so menstruation needs to be cleansed. And so he's kind of teaching this people through these rituals that they can walk through. And so women were supposed to have a cleansing bath and if possible on the roof because no one would, would be able to see them. They wouldn't draw a lustful gaze. So what I want us to notice is the king is technically where he's allowed to be on his palace, watching everybody, keep an eye on him, making sure we're all righteous and faithful, honoring Yahweh, and she's where she's supposed to be, cleansing after menstruation. So it's, it's justifiable. You know, that first look, he's just looking at his kingdom, surveying all the responsibilities that he has. But then the second look and the third look, it's small, it's subtle. Hey, assistant, would you just go find out who she is? And isn't that how sin starts in your life and in my life? I mean, you never just jump in. You always kind of test the water, and there's that little self-justification. You know, I mean, culturally, everybody does this. I know it's technically kind of frowned upon, but just this one time. And that's what's so difficult about sin because it always starts small. But not only that, you think you can get away with it, don't you? Don't I? If you're taking notes, this is something to note. And this is something to kind of do a gut check on yourself. Isn't it the case that when we sin, when we miss the target, we shoot for truth and righteousness and living a life that honors God, and when we miss, big or small, we kind of think we can Get away with it. You know, who's going to know? 2 Samuel 11, 4 through 5. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So I don't know how that went, but I picture David kind of having a conversation. It's just lunch. It's just a drink. Nothing's going to happen until something happens. Now, now, what maybe was somewhat innocent, somewhat curious, turns into something nefarious, something wrong, something that God is not okay with. She has no agency. He's a king. This is the ancient world. Kings have dominions and kingdoms, and whatever they want, they take. And he takes this woman who's married to another man. Now, in other kingdoms, neighboring kingdoms, that's just what happened. And it makes you wonder, what sins are we engaging in right now in our everyday life that are just so culturally accepted? And the reason we engage in them is it's like, well, that's just kind of how it works. That's what we do. Everybody does it. That's what David is up against. Every king does this. I have been fighting for like 20 years for God. 
I have been doing the right thing my entire life for like 50 years. I have gone through trial after trial. I have been God's righteous man. I deserve it. Why shouldn't I have Bathsheba? Had he known that she would have gotten pregnant, do you think he would have pulled that trigger? I don't. I mean, it's interesting. She's still like right in the middle of cleansing from her menstrual period. Do you think there's a coincidence that he kind of recruits her right on the tail end of that, right on the end of that, thinking, you know, this is the ancient world's birth control. This isn't going to happen. Nothing will happen. Nobody will know about this little indiscretion. It'll be fine until, hey, David, I'm pregnant. And that's how it is with us. That's how it is with me. That's how it is with you. We just kind of think, you know, it starts small. It's not a big deal. And and no one's going to know. Here's what's wild about being a Christian. I love this church because we have atheists and agnostics who attend because they feel welcome and they're seeking and they're thinking about spiritual matters. But before you sign up for this thing, we believe, literally, that everything we say, do, think will out, be out in the open eventually in eternity, that we'll stand before God and it's all going to be revealed. And as crazy and embarrassing as that feels, Somehow, because of the cross, we're not going to feel condemned. We're not going to feel, like, afraid of that. God will even be glorified more because it will all be uncovered. Nobody's getting away with anything, and everybody's getting away with everything, in a sense, because of the cross. And it's so crazy to think that, no, you think you can get away with it, but you're not, in a sense. It's all going to be revealed. The third point that I'd like us to consider is this. The cover-up, David's cover-up, and your cover-up, and my cover-up, more often than not, it makes it worse. You see a cascading effect, a snowball effect in David. Let's look back at the text here, 2 Samuel 11, 6 through 15. So David sent this word to Joab, that's a military commander, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. Uriah's the husband of the woman he just slept with and impregnated. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. So he's asking for a sit-rep situation report in the military. He's like, how's the things going? Okay. But he didn't really want a sit-rep. He wanted something else. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That basically makes you ritually clean to be in the home and kind of resume home duties. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Hey, you've been deployed for 13 months. why, Why don't you go and sleep with your wife, is what he's saying. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. Do you see the progression David's like, I'm just going to get rid of this. It's an easy cover-up. I'm just going to pull him back from the front lines. I'll sleep with his wife. He'll think it's his kid. 
And then it's like, oh my gosh, you're like the soldier I'm supposed to be. You're the man of honor that the king is supposed to be. I'm going to get this guy drunk and maybe he'll do it. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So David's on a balcony. He's watching over his people as he should. He sees a naked woman. He should avert his eyes and go back in his office and do some kingly duties. It's not the first look that gets you. It's the second and the third. And then he sends for her. And maybe it's somewhat innocent at first, but it turns not innocent. And then he has sex with her. And then when sin conceives there are consequences. There's a child coming. And now he's got to cover it up. And, you know, I can take care of this. It started small. It got a little out of control here. I can cover this up. It's fine. I'll just bring the husband back. They'll sleep together. They'll think that the kid is theirs. It'll be fine. Until it's not fine. Because this man is honorable. And he said, how could I sleep with my wife in the middle of a campaign when all my platoon is out there fighting? And they said, well, okay, I'll bring him to my table. I'll get him drunk. And even drunk, this guy will not do the wrong thing. And then he gives this Uriah, his friend, by the way, scholars think that they were friends, a note and says, I trust your honor that you're not going to read this. You take this to the lieutenant colonel. And he hands it to his commanding officer. And can you picture it? The commanding officer is like looking at this and it says, kill the guy who just delivered the note. And this officer knows that this is one of the best soldiers. Do you think for a second that David on that balcony, if he could have foreseen even these second and third order effects of his sin, would for a second ask, hey, who's that girl? Bring her up. Do you think it feels good to be in a situation where you're compelled to, in a very manipulative, cowardly way, kill one of your best friends and combat buddies? Can you imagine the mental anguish of the cover-up and the effects of the cover-up? This is the nature and the weightiness of sin. It always starts small. We always think we can get away with it. And the cover-up almost always makes it worse. He tries to easily cover it up, but it escalates, and that's what sin does. The fourth point is this. This is a doozy to preach in our culture. God is watching, and there are consequences. God is watching, and there are consequences. I mean, sometimes it's easy to just go about your life, and, "Ah, you know, there's God. Like, I think he's there when I go to church. But then, you know, he doesn't really pay attention. He's got a lot on his radar. Doesn't seem like he's here because he allowed me to go through some bad things. No, 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 God is always present. He's omnipresent. Every hard thing that you have gone through, God was closer to you than your breath. Every accomplishment, every moment of joy, he's always near. And that should give us profound comfort when we suffer, but it should hearken us to avoid sin. Think of all the stuff that you're ashamed that you've done, saw, thought about, said, committed, Is there anything that you would have done if your mom was present? No. 
Well, God is much more intimate and loving and perfect than your mom, and he's with you, and he's with me all the time. He's watching, and there are consequences for sin. God is constantly trying to teach the, the Israelite people, I want you to be different and set apart. I want you to be holy. That's what holy means, set apart, like unique, like in my image, characteristically like me. And, and I'm going to teach you through ritual, through centuries, through your journey, that there are profound consequences for missing the mark, for not living in accordance with the truth. We'll go to 2 Samuel eleven twenty six 26 through 27. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Think about the complicated grief that a woman would feel when she was almost practically raped by a king who she previously adored and revered, and now she's impregnated and she watches all these cover-up attempts and then she knows that the very guy who is the father of her child had her husband killed. You thought you went through some complicated grieving. Man, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. What a relationship that must have been. You thought your marriage was weird, right? But the thing... David had done, what is that word? Displeased the Lord. This is the first time in David's journey where there's anything negative to say about him. It's the first time that the Lord looks on David and sees anything but obedience and righteousness and faithfulness. And this is the hinge. He's in his early 50s. He's got 20 more years. He dies when he's 70. 20 more years on the throne. And for the next two decades, there's misery and there's consequences, and there's pain, and you can see the sin just kind of create ripple effects across his generations and his family members. God is watching each one of us, and there are consequences. Now, what I love about Mercy Road, one of the things among many is our name, Mercy Road. There's that little logo with a winding road going towards what? The cross. And our name was intentional because we're a bunch of misfits who are collected together, all walking towards the cross, the grace of Jesus. And our roads are super windy. Windy as in they have consequences for our conscious and unconscious rebellion. When you walk into a pole, it hurts, right? And we've all walked into a few poles in our day. When you linger on the balcony and give in to a desire rather than resist the desire, that has consequences. Things are birthed from that. That's just how the world works. And God is watching. But this is so significant because David, for the first time, just kind of, he's a giant slayer, and it's like he just gives up himself to the giant of lust, to the giant of pride, to the giant of selfishness, to the giant of entitlement as a leader, and you just see the carnage unfold. And and it's worth just saying, Ari, our worship pastor, he told me a story that his dad used to uh, have a parenting move where when he, he didn't know how to parent, he'd just say, you'll stand before God, son. <laughs> you know, like, whoa. So if you're parenting or grandparenting, maybe try that out, you know, if the kids are watching too much screen time or something. But there is something to say about that. You know, we will stand before God. And I wonder if... Most churches, like ours, who emphasize God's grace, I mean, we have mercy in the name, 
overemphasize that. We just talk about the forgiving love of God, but we never talk about the costliness of the grace and the seriousness of sin. And I don't like to eat vegetables. I put them in a, in a blender and I, and that, I drink my vegetables because I don't like them that much. But I do try to take them because I know I need a balanced diet. This Mercy Road is a balanced diet. God is watching and there are consequences. Are you just in open rebellion? Let's get the scripture on the screen here. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him after the time of mourning over, was over. David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. If we can go back to uh, Leviticus 17, 17. Uh, I believe that's uh, on the second, or uh, Deuteronomy 17, 17. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Why am I bringing this obscure little text? Because David had that memorized. He most likely had the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books. But he must not take many wives or his heart be led astray. That is biblical wisdom to godly leaders, men, and women, but specifically to rulers. David lived in a cultural moment where it was just super normal. To, to be polygamous, to have many wives, to have concubines, essentially sex slaves. And there was this one little area in David's life where he knew he was supposed to be very different than the culture, but he was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to be mostly different, but not fully different. He actually had a few wives, which God was not okay with. The Bible does not condone polygamy. If anything, it's a comedic commentary on how bad polygamy is, culturally speaking. Everyone who engages in it they turn out to be utterly miserable. And many of you are married to people where you're like, yeah, I could not handle two of them. <laughs> right? <laughs> there you go. So David knows that, this, that God is watching. David knows he's in the wrong here. He shouldn't have multiple wives and he shouldn't be do, on like the balcony version of Tinder. And he does it. And there are consequences. What are the consequences? I'm going to read from the message translation. Nathan, the prophet, is raised up to confront David in his sin. And he says this, you are the man, after he tells him a little story. So you're the guy who's in the wrong. And here's what God, the God of Israel, has to say to you. I made you king over Israel. I freed you from the fist of Saul. I gave your master's daughter and other wives to have and to hold. I gave you both Israel and Judah. You united the entire kingdom under me, is what he's saying. And if that hadn't been enough, I'd gladly throw in much more. So why have you treated the word of God with brazen contempt, doing this great evil? You murdered Uriah the Hittite, then took his wife as your wife. Worse, you killed him with an Ammonite sword. And now because you treated God with such contempt and took Uriah the Hittite's wife as your wife, killing and murdering will continually plague your own family. This is God speaking. That's heavy. That's heavy. Friends, we don't get away with anything, ultimately. Because God sees. Because it will be open in the light. And this should inform us to act and live differently. Not out of fear, but out of reverence. Out of logic. The last point is this. Sin starts with pride and it ends with sacrifice. Because that is the question. How in the world did David go from being like the best quarterback in the NFL to deciding to sit out a season and then it just all kind of went 
went downhill from there. How did he go from trials to incredible triumph? It's like this crescendo of success to all of a sudden, on a hinge moment, entering into 20 years of hardship and troubles. Let's get the text here, 2 Samuel 11, 1. In the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. How did we get into this mess? There is a place and a role that you are supposed to be at and be performing. Really, most moments of your life. And you have a choice to show up and to do the role that God has called you to or to not. And I do too. And David did too. And every springtime, David, as a king, was supposed to lead his army, as a godly king would do, lead by example, on the front lines to make sure the enemies of God did not destroy Israel. And after 20 seasons of doing that well, he decided to say, you know what? I've had a lot of wins. I've given up a lot for God. I deserve a break. Let those guys do the fighting. I think we've automated this by now. Do I really need to go to church? Do I really need to show up and listen in my marriage? Couldn't I just give my kids a tablet? Because playing checkers with them is just annoying. It's so easy to give them that little iPad. Sin starts with pride. Pride is the root of all sin, friends. It's me over thee. It's I'm going to sit on the throne instead of let you, God, sit on the throne of the universe that belongs to you. It's saying, you know what? I know kings are supposed to go off to war, but war is so messy and hard, and I'm sick of it. These Ammonites, we beat them. They're predictable. It's boring. How many times have I been on the balcony when I should have been on the battlefield? A lot, if I'm being honest. Because I have something that David has that you have. It's called the flesh. The Bible says we have the flesh. It's the corrupted nature of sin. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? So we should understand viruses, right? There is something much more serious than the coronavirus. It's called sin. And, and vaccinated or not, <laughs> whether you're a believer or not, whether you've accepted the forgiving love of God or not, it is still incredibly destructive. It's easy. When you look on the news and you say, oh my gosh, like Ravi Zacharias, all these leaders, and Mark Driscoll, all these great pastors, they, they fall. Or look at Harvey Weinstein, what a sleazebag, you know, the Me Too stuff. It's so easy to just condemn all these people. Jesse Smollett, he's like faking a hate crime. That's terrible. Hey, wait, Christian. The very thing that led them to do that, that thing, that root, it's in you. It's in me. And if we feed it, it's explosive. One young, uh, I forget his name, but he was a young evangelist, I think in the 18th century. He died when he was 29, but he was just this godly guy, and he would journal, and his journals were really fascinating. They were like commentaries on how his own life worked and his emotions. And, and so I've read through them, and he said something like this. He said, I have noticed lately that as I progress in holiness and godliness, I am tempted to think that I can go into areas that are tempting for me because I am maturing. 
And he said, but that would be as if a man would take gunpowder closer and closer to a flame because he has a good track record of not blowing himself up. Right? In other words, we are all tempted with pride, saying, God, I just, I just don't really want to follow that rule. You know, culture says you can do this, and I'm inclined to think that culture is right and your word is wrong. You know what? I just don't care. I just don't want to go. Now, it starts with pride, and it did for David, but it ends with sacrifice. So I read to you this incredible part Let's get 2 Samuel on there. Uh, we read in the spring, he's in the wrong time in the right place. And then Nathan confronts him and he basically says, you're going to have these terrible consequences. David's son dies as a result of this. And, and you're tempted to think like, God, that is so brutal. That's so unfair. You're punishing somebody else for his sin. But then comes this. After Nathan confronts David, then David confesses to Nathan, I've sinned against God. And Nathan cuts him off. Nathan pronounced, yes, but that's not the last word. God forgives your sin. You won't die for it. But because of your blasphemous behavior, the son born to you will die. Yes, you have sinned. And there are consequences. And the, the weightiness of sin, small or big, they're like your, your child dying heavy consequences. That's the unfortunate nature of reality that we, we don't, I don't like to preach on, I don't like to hear preached to me, but it is. Like that's how heavy sin is. Like your kid dying heavy. But sin starts with pride and it ends with sacrifice and it's not yours. Our God is so good and so loving that he says, as serious as sin is, and I and as much as you kind of are underplaying the consequences and playing fast with the rules and all this stuff, it's not your kid that's going to die for all this. It's mine. I will send my own son to pay the debt of sin. Friends, if you've never really considered the gospel, consider it now. I, I have uh, I served for eight years in the military, and for most of the 10 years after I got out of the army, I just kept all my medals in a shoebox. And I started to have tough dreams and stuff and some PTSD issues from combat. And I went to see a therapist at the VA. And one of the things he, he told me to do is put my medals in a little display case on the wall. Now, I, it always seemed counterintuitive to me to do that because I thought, I don't want to be prideful and like, you know, I, I don't want to be the type of person who just looks at those and like, I'm a big deal or whatever, but I did it because your therapist tells you to do it. And I was looking at this little display case the other day, and I was thinking, because I've met a few guys who have the Medal of Honor. I don't, obviously, but, but they do, and it's amazing. And most people have to die to get that. And, and it's quite a moving scene when you, when you watch someone on video be given the Medal of Honor. Because in that moment, of course, they're imperfect. Of course, they're sinful like all of us. But, like, they've got the Medal of Honor. Like, like they put that on your license if you get the Medal of Honor. And like, if a cop pulls you over, it's like, you have the Medal of Honor. You just went like 100 and a 20, but whatever. You have the Medal of Honor, you know? Now, I want you to picture this. There are some things in your life you're, you're ashamed about, and you should be because they're wrong and they're sinful. And, and some of it's in your past, and some of it you're doing right now. 
And God is displeased with that. But because of the cross, Jesus dying in your place, God loves you so very much, it's as if God the Father through Christ has bestowed on you the medal of honor. When God looks at your face, he chooses to see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He does not look at you as you deserve to be looked at. He looks at you as the person that will be crafted over eternity into the holy image of his son. And so he cannot do anything but delight in you. Do you feel ashamed? Do you feel like you're just never making progress in your fight against sin? Or you've done something that almost disqualifies you from God's love? You're wearing the medal of honor. When people look at that medal and they look at your face, there's nothing but respect and admiration and celebration, and that's how God sees you. Practically speaking, what should this do for us? We should take sin seriously. We should. Because the weight of sin is like your kid dying heavy. But we should rejoice and be humbled and live in this sense of peace, knowing that whatever your problems are, and they're probably worse than you even think they are, right? Whatever your issue is, through the cross, through the simple acceptance of the love of God poured out on Calvary, on the cross, through the death of Jesus Christ and the promise of resurrection, you're wearing the Medal of Honor. And you will one day live up to that medal because when God promises that he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Let's pray. Gracious God, it's hard to preach on sin. It's hard to hear a sermon on sin. It's not a popular thing culturally. I don't think it ever has been. But, but it's how reality is laid out. It's how we find ourselves. For any of us who have not accepted the medal of honor that is the forgiving love of Jesus Christ, would we accept that? Would we come to our senses cry out and say, Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Savior. Be my Lord right now, today. For those of us who have, would we live in a, a new awareness? For those of us who are standing on metaphorical balconies, we're not where we should be. We're in the wrong place at the wrong time. We didn't show up on time to where we need to be, and we're not doing what we need to be. Would you just gently put your arm around us through the Holy Spirit and just guide us to the, to the place in the battle that we need to be fighting. Thank you that ultimately, Lord, it's not about us defeating sin. That's not what accepts us. It's all about you defeating sin. Help us to look at David and see the foreshadowing of the Savior and the need for the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.